Most of you know, probably already, that I grew up with two younger brothers, and we grew up in a Christian household. And among other things, that meant that occasionally our insults took on a certain biblical flavor. Uh, one, of the, one of the insults you could hear flying around from, from all directions uh, was Nimrod. Okay, Nimrod, that was, that was a favorite among my brothers and I. Although, you know, it's kind of an unusual insult. Uh, at some point, we all learned that uh, the original namesake in Genesis, uh, if you read, you find out Nimrod was a mighty warrior, a mighty hunter before the Lord. Uh, and so I always wondered, I don't, I don't know how that went from denoting a mighty warrior, something that, you know, teenage boys would have certainly loved, uh, to becoming an insult. Uh, but recently I found out, uh, and it turns out that the reason for this is the Bugs Bunny and Elmer Fudd cartoons. Now, if you're not familiar with these, Elmer Fudd is, is a kind of hapless and incompetent hunter who is routinely outwitted by the rascally rabbit Bugs Bunny. Uh, and at one point, when, when Elmer, again, fails spectacularly to uh, kill his prey, Bugs Bunny apparently refers to Elmer Fudd sarcastically as a Nimrod. Now, what happened was that all the kids watching this who, who you know, weren't steeped enough in the Old Testament to understand where that name came from simply took it at face value. Uh, they knew that Elmer Fudd was hapless and incompetent, and they assumed that that's what it meant to be a Nimrod. Uh, and so just like that, that word and its English meaning flipped 180 degrees, just like that, thanks to a cartoon. Now, I share that little nugget with you this morning because today we're going to spend the first of two weeks, possibly three, we'll see how it goes, on the book of Revelation. Uh, and something similar has happened with the word apocalypse. Now, when you hear that word now, I would guess most of you, like me, it, it, it conjures images of carnage, death, destruction, and either the literal or metaphorical end of the world. And that's a problem because that is nothing like what the word initially meant when it's used in the, in the Old Testament, New Testament uh, context. In fact, if you look at the very first verse of Revelation, and if you want, we got the Pew Bibles back, you can open up and follow along a little bit this morning. The first verse says this, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. In Greek, the word apocalypse is the word that gets translated in English to revelation. That is, apocalypse means simply to reveal or to uncover. Now, think the opposite of the verb to hide. Actually, in Matthew 11, uh, Jesus has this great moment, this prayer, where he thanks his Father. He says, I thank you, Father, because you have hidden these things from the wise, and you have apocalypsed them. You have revealed them to small children. So Jesus uses that contrast between hiding and apocalypsing, revealing. Uh, it's the same word that John uses right here in Revelation 1.1 to introduce the book. And, and as I said, it's used all throughout Scripture. Uh, one other helpful example that I think will help us frame the book as we get started this morning comes from Galatians 1.12, where Paul, writing to the church in Galatia, reminds them, he says, listen, the gospel I have shared with you is not something I got merely from other human beings. It was apocalypsed to me by Jesus himself. Jesus revealed it to me. Now, what Paul's referring to there is not the end of the world. It's not a scene of death and carnage. It's his own conversion experience. 
Uh, If you remember, Paul sets off on a journey, and at the beginning of the journey, uh, he is a zealous opponent of Christianity and of Jesus. Uh, But on the way, what happens? The risen Jesus appears to him. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he says, who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. And from that moment on, Paul flips from being an ardent opponent of the Christian faith to being a zealous apostle of the Christian faith. And the reason is that Paul has an apocalypse. Something had been hidden from Paul that Jesus revealed. Well, what was hidden? What was hidden was the true identity of Jesus. Before he has this apocalypse, he thinks that Jesus is a false teacher who is leading many Jews astray. But when this apocalypse happens, God reveals, he uncovers the truth about Jesus' identity for Paul. And the truth that is uncovered is that Jesus is, in fact, God's Messiah. He's the Messiah Paul himself has been waiting for his whole life. Before that event, Paul had an, an unclear, a poor, distorted view of Jesus. He could not see him clearly. But here, in this apocalypse, he sees the truth of who Jesus is. That's how an apocalypse works. It takes something that is hidden or obscured, and it pulls the curtain back. It reveals the truth. So when we read in Revelation 1.1 that John is sharing an apocalypse, uh, right away, we should start thinking in terms of those two categories. We should wonder, okay, what for John's audience is obscured? What is hidden? What is confusing? And what is it that God is going to reveal more clearly through John and through this apocalypse? Well, the answer, as we'll see quite clearly as we go through the book together, is that the, the church is being persecuted more and more by Rome. Persecution is ramping up. Uh, and what's happening is that this is leading to doubts and confusion on the part of some believers. They're looking at this wondering, well, wait a minute, if Jesus is risen and he is victorious, why does it look like Rome has all the power? I mean, if God's kingdom is coming, why is it that the Roman Empire seems to be so firmly in control? And if we are really God's true people, why are we being persecuted and martyred. The the purposes and plan of God in the midst of this persecution, that's what's being hidden from them. That's what they can't see clearly. And so like Paul before his apocalypse, many of them have become confused and discouraged by what they have seen and experienced. They don't understand it. And so here's what God does. God provides a gift to encourage them. It's a gift, John says, from God to Jesus for Jesus' servants. What God does is he pulls back the curtain and he grants them access to his own perspective on what they are experiencing, both right now and what's to come. God knows that many of them are fearful because they have seen events only from their own limited earthly perspective and they don't make sense to them. And so God gives them a gift. He reveals his own perspective so that their faith might be strengthened, and so that they might have the courage that they need to face the coming persecution. And, and, so that they might see 
that despite how things look to them in the moment, that they might know that God is still in control and that his plan and his purposes will still be accomplished. So that's the first big thing I'd like you to take away this morning is that this book is a gift from God to Jesus for his servants who are suffering persecution to encourage them and to provide them with a heavenly perspective on earthly events. Uh, to reinforce this point, the, le- the book itself opens up with messages to seven specific churches around the Asia Minor region. Uh, if you look, John's vision begins when he hears a loud voice like a trumpet telling him, write on a scroll what you see and send it to these seven churches. Then it lists them. Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Theatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. And when John turns to see the source of this voice, we, we read that what he sees is one like a son of man, standing in the midst of seven lampstands. This figure has snow-white hair and blazing eyes, and he reveals that this is Jesus himself, and that the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Jesus then dictates a message for each of these churches to John. Now, we don't have anything like the time to walk through all of those individually this morning, but I'd encourage you to do it. Uh, There are parts of this letter that are very difficult to understand, but this isn't one of them. Uh, These first three chapters, these letters are going to read much like Paul's letters, uh, some of them to the same church. So what I want to do instead, though, is just highlight three themes uh, that you can find throughout all these seven messages. First, over and over, we see an acknowledgement that persecution is here and that more is on the way. Look at Revelation 2.10. Jesus says, do not be afraid of what you're about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for ten days. Be faithful even to the point of death, and I will give you life as your victor's crown. Or 310 to the the church in Philadelphia. Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come on the whole earth to test the inhabitants of the earth. I'm coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. And by the way, that line there, hold on to what you have, uh, that occurs over and over throughout these messages. And and that itself is an indicator uh, that times are going to be hard. And what believers need to do in the midst of this ramping up of persecution is to hold on, just to hold on to what they have. Second, the letters all make clear that for all believers, this time of trial and persecution is going to force them into a clear and stark decision. Will they hold on to what they have? Or will they remain faithful to their Lord and Savior? Or will they compromise? Will they give in to false teaching and to laziness and to the demands of Rome? Uh, Pastor Paul touched on this a few weeks ago at the end of our series on Acts. But the fact is, the Roman Empire could be reasonably tolerant when it came to religion. They were happy to let you worship your God, so long as you also made time to worship Caesar. So fine, go ahead, pray to Jesus. Just make sure that when you're done, you you travel down the road and you make some sacrifices to Augustus and Domitian as well. Now, I know it's hard to put ourselves in their shoes, but I gotta tell you, if your livelihood, if your life and the lives of those that you loved depended on this kind of compromise, it must have seemed awfully tempting, like like a small compromise maybe. 
But what Jesus reveals to John is that behind this offer is no one other than Satan himself, working hard to keep people from saving faith in Jesus Christ. And so it has to be resisted at all costs, even even to the point of death, as we just read. Those are high stakes, but that's what these churches are facing, and Jesus acknowledges it. Third, all of these messages reveal an intimate knowledge of these specific churches. If you read through them, it becomes obvious. This is not, you know, sort of general exhortation and instruction. These are urgent messages to specific congregations. Some are praised for their works, uh, praised for resisting false teaching. Others are rebuked for embracing false teaching, rebuked for their lack of works. Each is specific to that congregation, praising the good, but also identifying their temptations and struggles. And what that makes clear to me is this. Whatever we're going to make of what comes, uh, you know, not only this week, but next week, of the chapters that follow, it must first and foremost be something that would speak to these people facing these struggles. Now, don't misunderstand me. There is valuable, crucial teaching for us here as well, but it has to be rooted in its original context and purpose, which John has told us quite clearly is to encourage these churches who are facing increasing Roman persecution. Now, quick side note before I move on. Uh, Apocalyptic literature was a whole genre, and it was more or less unique to the Jewish and Christian world, And and it was written mostly from the end of the Babylonian exile up through the early Middle Ages. Many of these books, like this one, were full of of rich uh, symbolic imagery, and they they also would strive to provide a heavenly perspective on earthly events. Many of them were written under pseudonyms, uh, so authors writing under the name of Adam or Enoch. Uh, And because they took on these sort of ancient personas when they wrote, the letters often included a specific command. They would say, seal this letter up until the appointed time. Now, I mention that because I want you to notice that that this book is unique in at least two ways. First, John writes under his own name. Uh, And what that tells me is he expects that at least some in his audience will know who he is. They will either know him personally or they will know of him. Second, this book ends in Revelation 22.10. It's very striking. After all the visions... Uh, John is getting ready to return to his body, and an angel looks at John and says, do not seal this scroll. Don't seal it, for the time is near. And it hammers home the point that John is writing, at least initially, first and foremost, for his contemporaries, for people who need the courage to face the trials that have already begun. All right, well, after Jesus dictates these seven messages, we get to chapter four, and and John says that a door opens up in front of him, and he hears a voice calling out from heaven that says, come up here, and I'll show you what must happen. And the next thing he knows, John steps through the door, and he finds himself in the throne room of all creation. Now, sorry, another another quick note here. Uh, This is another common feature of apocalyptic literature. John is taken up into heaven, to the throne room of creation. And from this high vantage point, he will be able to look down. 
he, he will be able to see much more clearly not only what comes next, but more clearly understand what has already happened. Uh, he is being given a literal God's eye view on history. All right? He will see events not as they appear to those of us on the ground living through them, but as they appear before the throne of God. A couple weeks ago, my wife and I had the opportunity to go to Colorado, and we did some hiking while we're there. One of the hikes we wanted to go on, we found out was very popular, and we were told, listen, if you want to be sure to get a parking spot, you have to be there essentially before sunrise. So we thought, oh, okay, well, well, we'll set some alarms and we'll do it. And we did. We, we pulled into the parking lot at 4 o'clock in the morning, and believe it or not, it was already mostly full. Uh, but it was dark, and so it meant we started probably the first half hour of our hike hiking by the light of our cell phones, okay, the flashlight on our cell phones. Now, yes, other people more prepared than us had headlamps and flashlights. We used our cell phones, all right? It worked out fine. Uh, we hiked for a half an hour, and in a way, it kind of added to the drama, okay, because we started out in the dark, and we started out at a relatively lower elevation, well below the tree line. And so for the first couple hours, as you're hiking along mile after mile, you're just climbing, climbing, climbing. And most of the time, all you can see is trees. You know, occasionally you're following a stream, you come upon a beautiful waterfall. But by and large, you know, you can maybe see 30 yards in any given direction. But then all of a sudden, after miles of climbing, you come out above the tree line. And all of a sudden, you find yourself on a vista and you go from being able to see 30 yards to something like, I don't know, 30 miles, all right, forever. And all of a sudden, now you can see. You can see the road that you drove in on, maybe. Sometimes you can see the parking lot where you parked. And you can look back, and for the first time, you can really understand the, the trail you've just taken. You can see, oh, okay, we started there, and we had to come all the way up here. And you can look ahead. You can look to the future of your hike. You can see the peak where you're headed, and you can say, okay, uh, we still have to get up there. We've got to somehow travel this distance. And when you can see all that, it helps you also better understand where you are at that moment. You see where you've come and what you have left to do. I think that's a pretty good metaphor for what John is being given in this moment. In Revelation 4, he is brought up into heaven. So he is up high, and he is given a high vantage point. Only for him, it's not on geography, it's on history. He's able to look back at what God has already been doing and look ahead to what God has yet to do. And he is able to see it much more clearly because of the perspective that he has. Now, before we can get to that perspective on coming events, and sorry to tell you that's mostly going to be next week, I guess we'll just have to come back. Um... Before we can get there, John first has to describe for us the throne room of God. He can't just gloss over that. And what he tells us is that the throne is dominated, as you would expect, by a central figure on a central throne. And if you read it, I have to say, just for my money, I love Revelation 4 and 5. I think they're powerful, beautiful chapters, and they, they do an amazing job of sort of encapsulating uh, some profound Christian truth. And if you get it, if you read it, you get the sense that John is experiencing something that is literally beyond human conception. And so he's just, he's reaching for words that are at the very boundaries of human experience. Flashes of lightning, peals of thunder, rainbows, 
seas of glass. Because what he's seeing can't fit in his mind, let alone into words. Because what he is seeing is a God who is holy, who alone is the eternal creator God. And he is surrounded by living creatures and elders who worship him ceaselessly, crying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. It is a portrait of majesty and power and glory. And John tells us in chapter 5 that as he looks at this figure, he sees that in his hand he holds a scroll with seven seals, sealed with seven seals. And this scroll represents what we might think of as God's plan of redemption, his blueprint for bringing his rule fully to earth as it is in heaven. And John hears an angel calling out, into all creation for anyone who is worthy to open the scroll because the time has come for God's rule to come to earth. It's time has come for someone to open the blueprint and put it into action to make it reality. But there's a problem. Look at chapter 5, verse 3. It says, But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. And so John says, I wept and I wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. Now it's tempting to think that John's just being dramatic here, but I want to suggest that he isn't. It looks, in this moment, like all the suffering on earth is going to be pointless and endless. That there will be no justice, no rescue from sin, uh, no reconciliation with God because no one can be found who is worthy to open the scroll and accomplish God's will. But then, take note of this, John hears, he hears one of the elders say to him, do not weep, look, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is worthy to open the scroll and its seven seals. It turns out there is one and only one who is worthy to open the scroll. And it's the Lion of Judah. But look at what verse 6 says following this. He hears about a lion who triumphs. And when he looks, he sees a lamb looking as if it had been slain. He heard about a lion and he sees a lamb. Now, I'm sort of belaboring this because John's going to use the same contrast later in the book as well, but also because this is quintessential apocalypse in its original sense. John knows that when we hear about a lion who triumphs, we in our earthly context conjure up certain things, right? We conjure up lions, power, and violence. Our minds maybe go, if we're Jewish, to a Messiah who is mighty in battle, who raises an army and throws out the Roman legions by force. That's our distorted earthly perspective. What we see, what John sees, is the cover pulled back, and he sees that the reality of God's victory looks like the cross. The lamb did not conquer by violence or slaughter. The lamb conquered by his own blood. It's a brilliant literary move. I don't know if you're going to love this the way I love it, 
But I love it because it, in a picture, in a moment, it explains why for so many people, the cross, in, in a distorted earthly perspective, it looks to us like failure and it looks like defeat. But that, John says, is only because we can't see it clearly. He says, listen, if you could see it for a second, for a moment, from God's perspective, you would see it for what it is, which is triumph and victory and the glory of God. I want to pause for a minute because I just want to point something out to you. If you are here this morning and you have placed your faith in Jesus, if you have given him your allegiance as your Lord and Savior, that means you have had an apocalypse. At some point in your life, you heard the good news about Jesus, born of a virgin, suffered under Pontius Pilate, crucified, dead, and buried, rose on the third day, and, and ascended to sit at the right hand of God. You heard that, And at some point, God, by his grace, pulled back the cover so that you could see it for what it was, which was the truth. You saw a man lay down his own life, be executed by pagan Roman authorities, and you saw that it was the victory of God. And that's because God revealed it to you. You had an apocalypse John gives us one more incredible detail that drives home this this great point. And and it has to do with where the lamb is standing. He sees the lamb, but then he tells us where the lamb is. Look again at verse 6. He sees a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing in the center of the throne, encircled by the living creatures and the elders. Now hold on a minute. If you just read chapter 4, like, Red flags should go up all over the place. Wait a minute, wasn't that throne occupied? Wasn't it occupied by God himself and all of his majesty and power? Yes, exactly. That's the point. Impossible to miss. The point is that the lamb is somehow now identified fundamentally with the creator God of the universe. Somehow the worship that for all of history has been, has been due only to God is somehow now due to the Lamb. You want to know how we get to the Trinity? This is how we get to the Trinity. And remember, heavenly perspective on earthly events. So when we read this, we have to wonder... What has just happened on earth that is so pivotal, so transformational, that it has caused these creatures and these elders who have offered God, God alone, ceaseless praise from the dawn of creation, what could have caused them to now worship the Lamb? What has happened that for the first time would cause them to sing a new song? What could have caused this change even in the throne of heaven? Well, they tell us themselves. Look at verse nine. Or look at verse nine. Look at their song. They sing to the Lamb, "You are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals, because you were slain, and with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth." Well, here, friends, is the appearance and the proof. The appearance of the lamb and the proof of his worth explained. Why is the lamb and only the lamb worthy in all creation? Because he was slain and by his own blood 
He purchased a people for God from every nation. Listen, some of the symbols in this book, especially that we'll get into next week, are are difficult to interpret, hard for us to be sure that we know what they mean. But this is not one, okay? This is the crucified and risen Jesus. This This is the sacrificial death and resurrection of Jesus. Jesus alone is worthy, John sees, because he is conquered by the cross and by his blood. Because of that, he alone is worthy to open the scroll. He alone has the authority to bring the rule of God to earth, to make that blueprint of redemption and reconciliation a reality. All right, that's all the further I can make it, five, verse, five chapters. Um, but before I let you go, I have two, two insights I want to offer this morning from these first five chapters. First, if you pressed me, I think I would suggest that the central message of the book of, Reconcili- of Revelation is that the cross was and is the only means by which God's plan of redemption and reconciliation can be accomplished. I know that's, at least I hope, that's not going to come as a great apocalypse to you today, but that's only because God has already revealed that to you. Step out of your Christian worldview for a moment. Use your imagination. uh, Pretend that you are a Roman citizen and imagine how this message must have struck you. I mean, for them, the crucifixion of Jesus came and went almost without comment because Rome crucified people all the time. They crucified Jewish men in their thousands and tens of thousands. For them, the crucifixion of Jesus must have looked like no big deal, like nothing worth commenting on. But John tells us that it only appears that way to them because the truth is hidden from us by sin, by Satan, and by a fallen world that has lost sight of what victory and glory actually look like. When the reality of the cross is uncovered, when it is apocalypsed, we see it for what it is, which is the pivot point of all history. On the cross, the lamb triumphed over sin and death and evil. On the cross, he purchased a people for God from every nation. On the cross, Jesus won the right to open the scroll and to bring God's rule to earth. The cross was and is the only means by which God's plan of reconciliation and redemption was accomplished. The bottom line is no cross, no salvation, period. The second insight I would offer this morning is that while earthly kingdoms come and go, the same question stands always before us as God's people. Will we remain faithful to Jesus? Will we hold on to what we have? Or will we compromise? Will we be seduced, corrupted, and pressured into abandoning or dividing our allegiance? Uh, Rome, as it appears in this book, is of course the threat for John's audience. But Rome was just the latest in a long line of earthly kingdoms standing against the purposes of God. As though to make this clear, John refers to Rome all throughout Revelation as Babylon, uh, just to hammer home the point. Uh, Now listen, someday there will be a last kingdom to stand against the purposes of God. But until then, they will continue to come and go as they always have. Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Persia, Macedonia, Rome, and on and on. 
It's my opinion that we today face very different challenges and pressures. In some ways, we are beyond fortunate. For most of us, our lives and our livelihoods are not threatened by our faith, and nor are they ever likely to be. Our right to a faith of our choosing, for us as Americans, is even enshrined in our founding constitution, for which we ought to be beyond grateful. But that also means that, on occasion, the temptation to compromise can be a little sneakier, a little harder to discern. Listen, we are, we are unlikely to be asked explicitly by our government to give worship to someone or something else. But we are constantly tempted to prioritize other agendas, to put our faith in other people, to put our faith in other systems, or just to put our faith in good old American wealth and possessions. Those choices might seem less dramatic to you, less clear, less stark, but that might mean that they're just all the more tempting and all the more pervasive. And so what I want to remind us of this morning is that in this respect, the call for us is the same as it is for those seven churches in the first three chapters of Revelation. To hold on to what we already have. To fix our eyes on Jesus. And to make sure that our hope for salvation, for ultimate justice, for reconciliation, lies in the cross of Jesus Christ and in that alone. Would you bow with me as we close in prayer? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for the reminder we have this morning, this powerful vision of the victory of Jesus, God of your victory over sin and over evil. Lord, we thank you for the reminder that there is one who even now stands at your right hand, who has been given the authority to bring your kingdom to earth, and that right now your Holy Spirit is at work to make that happen. God, we pray that as your people, facing different kinds of temptations, uh, different calls to divide our allegiance, Lord, we pray that you would give us courage. Lord, that you would remind us of where our hope, of where the only hope has ever lied. And that is in the crucified and risen Jesus. Lord, might we fix our eyes on the author and perfecter of our faith. Might we be faithful to him. Might we, despite all other calls, hold on to the good gift that we have in Jesus Christ. In your name we pray. Amen.